After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Greetings and welcome to another mind-rolling podcast. I'm David Silver along with Raghu Marcus. Here we are. But again, well, we have something that uh, you came up with, something to talk about. I did? Really? I came up with something? Every month or two, you you do come up with something. (laughs) Okay. Um, But... uh, it's uh, you aptly named it um, digital dilemma. Digital dilemma. I had to look. It's, it's a bit of a tongue twister. Well, it's it's, it's alliteration. It's, yes. it's, I think it's quite sophisticated myself. Mm. Well, we are. Um, it's it's really a talk. We're going to talk about media, social media, digital technology. Related to, of course, the web. Um, but how this is actually an extraordinarily important topic for both of us because all we've been doing our entire adult lives, both Dave and I, again, we're the immigrants. We came to America and we got successful, maybe. Um, and uh, so the 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 reality of uh, being able to translate, disseminate, participate in the production of ideas and um, sound and image um, of things that were so dear to uh, our hearts and our experience uh, has been a blessing all these years, and you would say that as well. I know. Absolutely. And uh, so the importance of this subject, not uh, to belabor it, is is um, very special for us. And uh, let, I'm going to tell my little story, Dave. Okay. Uh, it, again, goes back to Ram Dass and uh, meeting him, which, you know, that was uh, a marking point change in my life and many, many, many other people. Um, and... Uh, I was at a radio station, and I've, I've, I've talked about this before, so I really won't uh, tell that whole story. But the fact is, I did meet him when I was at this station. I did bring him in and interview him, and then we started, uh, you know, broadcasting uh, his uh, lectures and so on and, and so forth, and getting into the whole, you know, Eastern philosophy uh, uh, thing. And um, so... I end up maybe 
a year and a half later, from that point, after spending time with Ramdas and so on, my life starts to change. All that, I end up in India. I I left my job. I was a program director of, of this radio station for the few years before that. I get to India. I meet Neem Karoli Baba, which is, as you all know by this time, is Ramdas's guru, and we call him Maharaji. And uh, after a number of months, maybe six months, of going, seeing him day to day with this large group of uh, Westerners and having that uh, experience, um, you know, life-changing, obviously, um, one day he says to me, what do you do in America? Canada, actually, because I'm from Canada. And uh, so I'm trying to figure out what's the word for, how do I explain program director? You know, this is what's going on in my mind. I mean, I was the program director. This is my job. This is what I did. Before, and I must uh, say to you that every conversation with Maharaji had a translator. But many's a time that he would tell the translator to, no, stop, that's not what I was saying, this is what I was saying, you'd make him translate it again till it got, so, you know, it was a big game. Uh, and, uh, and occasionally he would use an English word. Anyhow, he said to me, what, it is, what do you do in America? And uh, I said, I, I started to, I was thinking, and I, before I could say what I was going to say, which was just a radio manager, he came back to me, and in English, he said, broadcaster. And it wasn't just the uh, working at the radio station. I knew in that moment, it was like, I really dug Ramta so much. I had to get that out there. It didn't matter. I had a 50,000-watt station, so, you know, it, it, it was a, a lovely thing. Many, many people uh, heard about him and, and started... Uh, catching up and uh, reading his uh, material and so on and so on. Be here now, right? So um, that has been, and I know it's David's too, this is what we have been doing for since that time, in one way or another, really. And we've mostly done things that we gravitated towards, that we wanted to share. So um, here we are, full circle, with what's going on with social media and, and, and the whole digital universe and the ease at which any of ideas, sounds, images can instantly be in front of somebody. I can't even believe how expanded that is because when you and I were starting this, um, which, you know, I mean, it's not prehistoric times, but it's certainly pre-internet by far. I was doing television rather than uh, radio which was even tougher to do anything even slightly exalted. Right. And um, I was lucky enough to do a... I did a talk show first in Boston in the 60s called What's Happening, Mr. Silver, and it, I hosted it, and it was a, a countercultural show, and our whole sort of path on that was to do unusual things. I came into contact with some amazing people, including the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and all uh, alternative kinds of things. But what I learned back then was how powerful... Uh, television was. Mm. But nevertheless, in the years since then, uh, it was also powerful but narrow and extremely monitored 
and and not at all free to uh, expand upon things that were in your heart that you wanted to. So much of the time, I was involved in projects that were okay. You know, I worked with John Cage and Allen Ginsberg and those kind of people. I worked with Bob Marley, which is hardly uh, a small thing. But in 1981 or 82, which was the year of the Cable Act that Al Gore pushed through Congress, um, we all thought that cable television would change everything. And the word democratization was used a lot at that time. Mm. I think Gore himself used it. And I think Al Gore had real great vision and intentions for it. And we all felt that everything was going to expand at that point and we'd be able to do all kinds of things. And yes, there was expansion. And HBO was the first real breakthrough. And they've done amazing programming since then, really. Some terrific stuff. But let's face it. We're living in an age when cable television is all about uh, very inexpensive programming because they just don't have the budgets to do big things. And that comes down to the Kardashians. Started with the Osbournes, which I really liked. Watching Ozzy Osbourne, I thought, this is good. I hope it ends here. But what they found out was that these programs cost, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars $25,000 to produce, as opposed to a sitcom or an episodic, which cost 10 times, 20 times, 100 times more than that. So reality television grasped hold of television and has brought us all down consistently for the past 20 years. So thank goodness for the internet. Thank heavens for something which is actually a real change, a sea change, um, one where people like us can actually talk about things we're interested in and interview people who are more than just trying to, you know, sort of expand their ego across the planet, but have got things to say that can be helpful to people and maybe enlightening and so on. The question is, though, the tool is obviously neutral and fantastic. I mean, it's just amazing to me now that when I was a student, for instance, in England, to find out anything, I was studying literature, I had to go to the library, which in itself was a problem for me. But I would go and then I'd have to find the thing and I didn't always find it. Sometimes I have to travel to another city to find it. Mm -hmm. Now students just press a button and the god Google just immediately tells them everything. I very rarely can't find things on Google, no matter how obscure. How amazing is that? I'm Do you not think a, we you can know, get them as a sponsor? That was uh, Google. We nice love you. Testimony. Sponsor us. Yeah. Just you know, we love you. We love Google Plus. We love <laughs> Google Schmuggle. We love it. But the point of this conversation, I think, is to try and point out in a, a non-judgmental way, if we can, but dis discriminating. What are the, some of the dilemmas that we've come across? Um, yes, expansion of information is remarkable, and there's no downside to that. To me. It's just great. The more people know, the more ex the more expanded their consciousness is, the more tolerant they are. And I honestly think that people under 30 um, have the great fortune of, of being able to delve into this. And it's, it's helped people cross barriers. So what on that side, it's great. What about people that go up and uh, diagnose their illnesses and die three weeks later? Is that... Whoa, that's a good point. In other words, amateur, amateur um, you know, medicine and all of yeah. that. Well, what do you think about that? I mean, I, you know, it, I've, I, I, when I was ill recently, I actually did help myself by going to a site and, and finding out wrong. some dietary stuff. But there, I'm wrong. I mean, there you go. You were healed through the magic of, of Google. 
not only the, the, the diet, but actually finding a doctor who was a specialist in that within three months, because it said 1.3 miles away from you is Dr. J- Jerome Gutwein, you know, whatever. And I went to him and it was much easier than looking in a yellow page where you probably wouldn't find. So all of those things are remarkable and positive. But, you know, Raghu, we know that all tools are neutral and all of them from LSD to the automobile are mm. both great but potentially demonic and dangerous. And I think that's what the dilemma we're talking about is. Right. What is what is negative about this? Right. What do you think? Well, I, you know, I, before we got on here, I said, let's not talk about this Arab <laughs> film yeah. that these uh, people made in the United States as if it represented anybody and uh, sent it, you know, on, and it's on the net and look what's happening and... Mm. You know, God knows uh, that this, uh, how, uh, what the reverberations will be for something. But that is certainly an example of the other side of the coin, the dilemma of of this thing. And it's, uh, is it not, it's somewhat like the dilemma of, you know, just America, which is, you know, does allow free speech, you know, and, uh, and how that's coming into conflict, that, it, that very concept, you know, with uh, some of the rest of the world. Um, but that, that's an extreme example, and uh, I think that there, the dilemma is way more subtle. How about this one? Uh, the access to spiritual paths, quote-unquote, from Buddhist to Hindu to whatever, um, is, of course, as enormous as anything else. I mean, you can find anything. You know, somebody tells you, about the mind-rolling sect of Tibetan Buddhism, yes, like we did. We yeah. heard about it, and we went, and, and actually, we can't find out exactly what that teaching is. We, we, we have our own explanation of mind-rolling, as we said before, but, uh, you know, the, the point is people can find something like this, and perhaps it's, it's a little more sophisticated or a little more complex than what base of, uh, of uh, experience they might have. So people can jump into something like this, but without that base, uh, and, and a lot of times it's a living teacher, um, you know, to just go and attend these things and, and follow through with them on that level, um, it's, it's not as if anything bad is going to happen, but it misses the point. You you you're you're living beyond where you are, and you can live vicariously like that on the net easily, you know, in many different ways. But certainly, this this particular example. Well, you know, I think a lot of consciousness growth is steady. One of the things we learned in the '60s was that you could take a substance and immediately have these amazing epiphanies, but then two days later, you were still really upset about your life, your girlfriend, or the food you were eating, whatever. It didn't stick. Because it's, that's just not the way the universe works, I don't think. So a steady absorption into a discipline is absolutely crucial if you want to really make it a daily part of your life and part of your bloodstream. The problem with the Internet is it's that sort of instant coffee thing, you know, that you pour the water over the coffee and it becomes coffee, but it doesn't quite taste like coffee that's brewed, ever. Yeah. And I think that's maybe a bit of a crude, you know, sort of analogy, but let's put it this way. Information is great. Knowledge is great. Wisdom is something different. Yeah. So, wh- wh- how do you do? How do you take the knowledge and information that comes to you? For instance, if you want to find out about basic Buddhist tenets, 
yes, you can immediately find fantastic information there. But don't you still have to sort of take refuge with an accomplished master, with a, a great tulku or lama or wh- wh- whomever, and sit there and, and, and really absorb the radiance of that person if he or she is authentic and make those judgments? I mean, the Buddhists themselves say, judge your teacher. It's one of the, it's one of the most basic mm-hmm. tenets of Buddhism, which is don't just accept this. Buddhists do not believe in blind faith. As a matter of fact, they believe in, if this teacher is saying things that in your gut, in your viscera, you think are wrong, question him or her about it. And if he, if he or she does not come up with the answer that you like, get out of there. They all say that. This, the internet does not give you that, that yeah, choice. Yeah. You know. By the way, that's an important thought, that thought. Really? That you, I had one? Yeah. My goodness. Write Can you that write down. it? Write that down. We have it recorded, <laughs> which is good. But it, it is a thought that I want to expand upon in another podcast from mind rolling because it's an important one about teachers and true teachers etc etc um let's let's talk about audible for a second raga why don't you just tell yes, people what our great sponsor is who we, audible.com well what we uh we they have some wonderful uh books uh, that are spoken books and it's a great way to travel around and especially if you're driving a lot or uh, well, first you'll listen to this podcast, then you can listen to one of your audio <laughs> books as, you know, on your way to work and all that. Um, but uh, uh, they give a uh, 30-day free trial of it, and you get a book. And uh, to, uh, to get all of that, you uh, go to uh, audible.com. No, Audible Trial, Dave. I right. found that out oh, today. Oh, Audible oh. Trial. Oh, thank goodness. Dot com slash Mind Rolling Podcast, yeah. or just go to Mind Rolling Podcast dot com, and we'll have all the info there. So we we did our thing there. L- let me ask you about the other thing that, of course, when people talk about the net and talk about, um, it's like a living organism now. You know, and that certainly has superseded, um, you know, television, for instance, and, and so on. So, um, what about the alienation of in, of people at this point because they are sitting in front of those terminals mm-hmm. and they are communing with people through the social networks? Well, this is a complex subject. Yeah. And the well. first thing you have to watch out for is ageism, reverse ageism, which is that guys like us who grew up without this, uh, you know, can't immediately make judgments about people in their 20s or whatever, use it extensively. Not only that, but of course, smartphones and texting and so on. So you have to get rid of that, you know, prejudice yeah. and then go further and say, you know, your question is perfectly put, alienation, isolation. Does friending people on Facebook actually bring around uh, a a heart connection with people? I think it can, but people get obsessed. You know, I've got 700 friends. Well, you know, some wise person said to me recently, in your life, how many real friends do you have? Does this change because of Facebook? Well, I think it helps you communicate with more people and have more empathy for people, and, and also it helps people express themselves in a world which is not that expressive. So on that side, it's good. 
On the other side, does it help to know that in Twitter you have 140 characters to express some deep thing? Well, people say, I'm not expressing deep things. So where are you expressing the deep things? One-to-one in a room, yes. And then that might come out of a Facebook or a Twitter situation. I think it's really complicated, this, because I actually do believe that even from my age group, uh, my life has definitely been enhanced by these communication tools. But I did find at one point, and I'm not 20 years old by any means, uh, I have ties and suits older than that. Um, I found that I was getting you know, far older than that. I found I was getting a little bit weird. I'd get up in the morning and do my practice, whatever, and then instead of, of, of making coffee, uh, I would be on Facebook and seeing, oh, oh, heavens, look what she's doing, look what he's doing, and, and, and all of that. And it was a bit of an addiction. And I actually stopped doing it because I felt like I was wasting time. Uh, It's all bound up with the question of whether a generational change in the form of communication is always a positive thing or whether it actually goes backwards. You can't be judgmental about it from an age point of view, but you can certainly be discriminating and say, you know, uh, my daughter, my son is just all, their life is a combination of Facebook, Twitter, gaming, and watching Hulu, and, ne- and ne- you know, Netflix, is that good? I'll tell you, let me just mention something. I, I taught film at a college for a while, and um, one of the questions I put to my students in my first class was, when I wanted to see Casablanca or any great classic movies in the 60s and 70s, I had to wait for them to come to a cinema. That would, maybe my town didn't even have that kind of cinema. But when I finally got to it, the preciousness of it was like a great jewel. Now... It is literally a button away, everything. YouTube, and that's just the beginning of it. You can find anything immediately. And what I asked my students was, does that diminish the preciousness for you of these artworks? The consensus was no, it does not. We just see more of them, and we see them quicker. Mm. I had to take them at their word. Yeah. You know? However, there is some virtue in having to search for stuff and having to find it. Because in the process of doing that, you gain more and more respect for the artwork. In the question of spiritual disciplines, again, it's very hard not to be judgmental and say, it's too fast. This is too fast. So you now know about this tulku or this uh, great teacher, and you read about it quickly, but you don't actually meet the person, and you think you know the information, and it can rebound on you very quickly when you've actually thought you have this instant knowledge and then you find out the next day that you're still screaming at your girlfriend. Yeah, exactly. You're just not living. Yeah, it's it's way too fast. Now, on the other hand, you know what I really think, though, in terms of the social networks? You know, I think it's the same as the net. It's neutral. Whoever brings whatever they bring to it, it can enhance their lives and the lives of those around them, or it can be just some kind of... Uh, obsession, addiction, whatever other, I mean, if it's not that, it's, you know, and it's alcohol or drugs or whatever, it's all the same. And that's unfortunate. And uh, one possibility that is there, if you're in the right, uh, well, if you have the right friend network, I guess, is to get friends that are interested in something beyond just uh, the entertainment part of it, showing pictures of puppies. Hmm. Um, I, you know, I fortunately, I actually have a couple of people that uh, are connecting me all the time with with wonderful articles, you know, that they're researching and finding. And maybe it's part of their business or whatever it is. One of them is a publicist. 
Um, but that sharing is uh, is great. I, sharing of music, share, the sharing part of the social networks is really great. And and you know, if it's not, it's just uh, the obsessive part is always potentially there. So I think it's neutral. Actually, I really do think it's neutral. So if it's neutral, doesn't that imply that there should be some form of teaching? In other words, at schools and so forth, there should actually be somebody who is able to talk to students about the, the, the pluses and minuses of this, the goods and bads of it, in terms of how much time you spend on it versus how much time you actually spend with organic uh, carbon-based biped, upright bipeds. You know, I mean, it's one thing to look at someone on a screen. It's another thing to shake someone's hand or give someone a hug. I think most young people are aware of this. I think it's really patronizing for older people to say that they just are so oh, obsessed yeah. with this that they don't get it. They do get it. They no, still no, we're not you know, People you know. get obsessed or, you know, whoever, you know, the old coots that are on, yeah. the, on the net all the way down to, you know, the little tiny tots that are on it now, you know, six-year-olds. When, when my younger daughter got sick about, 10 years ago or whatever, uh, she was able to tell me immediately what sites to go to to find out what, what was really going on with her. Mm. I did, and, my, and then my dialogue with her was so much richer. It was amazing that suddenly I knew things that I would have had to go to someone and, and find out about. I was able to really commune with her and be far more useful to her as a father uh, because she was able to tell me where to go to look at what, what particular malady she had. That was just incredible, and I think that is only good. The problem is, you know, the real problem is where are we at about it? In this country, we, we have free speech. Um, and therefore, anybody can say anything about anyone. So, okay, um, somebody, you know, takes photographs of a celebrity or acquires some kind of Twitter image or whatever. I won't specify because we all know what I'm talking about. And it can become a real problem. And then the actual mean-spiritedness of it becomes a joke. I think that's a problem. I think that's something we all have to talk mm, about. Yeah. In other words, uh, it's one thing to write an email to someone that's private. It's another thing to Facebook, you know, bully, bullying. This is something interesting. Facebook bullying is a real problem. But what's interesting is that there are people who've used Facebook and the net to combat bullying, to, mm -hmm. to let parents and teachers know that this is, in fact, a real problem in many schools, and, we, and parents and teachers should commune on this and help uh, get rid of it by whatever means are necessary to get rid of it. And yet, it's a typical example. It's not going to happen. No. Nothing is going to be gotten rid of, and you know that. No, it's not. You yeah. know it. No. I mean, we are, it's, the, there's the, we're, it's neutral or zero has positive and negative to make up that. So right. that's really what, you know, and, and of course we still react to whatever, the, whatever of these things that are really negative and destructive we need to react to. We need to hmm. take social action, of course. But we need to realize that there is, <laughs> there is that yin and yang and that negative positive thing going on all the time. Uh, now it's gone. Obviously, this this world is a difficult place right now, and it's certainly more negative, um, and and more of us need to do stuff about that. That's for sure. And we do have, and and the net is what better means to that. And many positive things do occur in that direction. So, uh, but let's get back to the. You know, I go back to 
us, you and I, were broadcasters. Yeah. We were just starting out and, and broadcasting as much of this uh, essence that we got that we wanted, you know, uh, just to get. I mean, it, it, it's so uh, plain spokenly simple that it wasn't even a thought. And here we are, you know, and here we are today. But I, 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 I'd love for you to give us... Uh, there's one example of talking about stuff wanting to just share so deeply. You did one thing that, that I'm sure everybody wants to hear about. Because, uh, and there's even stuff here you may have not told me in all these last 4,000 years. <laughs> um, can you talk to us about that film? Because uh, we're going to talk a little bit now about media projects from those years, to, and what it meant to us and how we got that. Um, essence out there and in this particular one Bob Marley that movie you made in Jamaica where you got shot yeah um, I'd, I'd been uh, I did some reggae films in, in the mid 70s when it first became kind of a thing in, in the US and Europe and um, I was asked to make a film uh, about Bob Marley and in uh, December of 1976 I flew to Jamaica for the first time uh, to make a film of a concert he was doing called Smile Jamaica. The point of the film, the point of the concert, was extremely exalted. It was just before the election uh, between Manly and Siaga, warring tribes and political parties. Elections in Jamaica were, were famously violent. They usually were between 600 and 2,000 deaths during an election because of thugs and gangs that supported various parties. And the two... Prime Minister and his opposition decided to be present at a at a, a concert that Bob Marley was going to sing at, and in Jamaica, of course, it's very important. So I went there. I'd never been to Jamaica, and you know was very excited about it. And got there, met with Chris Blackwell, who discovered Bob Marley and was the head of Island Records. And within five minutes of being with Chris at the Sheraton Hotel in New Kingston, a phone call came through that Bob Marley had been shot. Hmm. And so my everything that was going to happen was just turned on its head and chaos ensued and in that room there were 20 or 30 Jamaicans most of them Rastas and Blackwell and myself and Perry Hansel who directed the film Harder They Come and was co-directing the Marley film with me and we all had to rush out and go to Hope Road where Bob lived and in fact he had been shot but not seriously although other people were shot quite so nobody died but five people were shot I think um, the reasons for it are still mysterious. It was not political. It was something to do with a, a gambling debt. And, uh, mm. of course, wow. Jamaicans are particularly conspiratorial and, and had good reason to be. What actually happened was Bob fled to the Blue Mountains and in, in outside Kingston, and I had a walkie-talkie system that we were using to talk to camera operators with, and we gave Bob one of our walkie-talkies, and he talked to me. I still have the tapes of him talking to me about whether he was going to come and do the concert or not, and so whether my film crew should stay. He did the concert and let me know about three hours before. And I'll never forget it, because it was at National Heroes Stadium in Kingston, 85,000 people, and um, he ran onto the stage with the Whalers, well, with part of the Whalers, some of them didn't, never came, with a band called Third World, who backed him. And uh, myself and my two camera operators uh, ran on the stage after him, and there were hardly any lights and because he didn't want too much yeah. uh, possibility of people shooting him. But there was one direct light, 
And as I ran on, and I'd only known Bob for about 18 seconds, I said to him, um, Mr. Marley, how close can my 60-millimeter cameras come to you? And he said while they were setting up, Man, him come close, man. I'm good, you know. Come real <laughs> close, man. I want tight shot, you know. <laughs> and I said, okay, fantastic. And I told my two camera operators, get close. I said, that's great. And he said, well, in great, you know, but in the sniper, kill me and I kill you too. <laughs> Never forget that moment. Um, the concert itself was divine. There was no violence and, and it was just a marvelous and completely unrepeatable experience. And this was before there was any independent film television. And I worked for a company called Video Vision, which was one of the first independent television companies because there was no outlet. There was no cable. It was just networks, and you couldn't sell Bob Marley to a network. They didn't know what the devil you were talking about. So it was a risk, and we put up, you know, quite an amount of money to do it. It was thrilling and fantastic. It changed my life. Two reasons. One, because of fear. I was terrified when we ran onto that stage because it was just a nightmare experience. Bob set me at my ease, and the crowd, um, uh, over 80,000, were singing along and swaying and clapping and cheering. It was just a beautiful and peaceful experience. And when we finished, I never felt such a great heart tug. I just felt so wonderful. Mm. And after out of that came a relationship with Bob, which lasted for the next five years, four years until he died. And I made many films and videos with him. Uh, in terms of media, Raghu... No, I want to hear more about Bob. I don't care about media. Well, Please, Bob, Bob was... Uh, Bob was tell ver- us about Bob. Bob was very media conscious uh, at a time when reggae was struggling, actually. We tend to forget that, you know, Bob's fame, global fame, has been much bigger since he, he, he died of, of melanoma and, and various cancers that spread. And, and he died on May 11th, 1981. And uh, I actually directed the very last video with him, which was in August, uh, early September, I guess, of, of 1980 in the Essex House Hotel in New York. Um, he was, uh, if you like, a media mystical leader. He would never call himself a leader. He was too humble for that. But in terms of that, I mean, he wasn't humble in terms of his music. Um, he really felt that his music was, you know, the most important music in the world at that time. He felt that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had uh-huh. great respect, I remember, for Stevie Wonder and um, for the Beatles and for Otis Redding and mm-hmm. uh, Marvin Gaye. Uh, he knew who his preset, you know, because reggae artists, a lot of it is based upon traditional, groundation, religious, Rastafarian ritual and music, but some of it is based on Detroit soul and Philadelphia soul music. So when you listen to Toots and the Maytals, who are now probably the premier reggae band, classic reggae band, uh, he sounds like Otis Redding. He's a soul singer with a reggae beat, you know. Mm. So they, they, and, and they took a lot of their um, inspiration from New Orleans, from blues music, from rhythm and blues music, from Cajun music. Uh, reggae was an amazing kind of amalgam, a, a cocktail, a, a brew of, of every kind of music, uh, particularly African-American music mm. and traditional um, calypso and, and various forms of West Indian music. Bob was uh, towered above the whole thing. What uh, was he like just to sit here like we're sitting here right now? It took, well, it took me a while to get to know him. Um, I was always a little bit intimidated by him because he, was, he had what he called a screw face. <laughs> um, and a screw face was when he didn't like you 
or well, it's a bit more complicated than that. When he didn't like the situation, he'd, his face would kind of contract, and he'd look at you in a way that was not pleasant. He never gave me the screw face, but I sort of gave him to others. Uh, he was extremely um, uh, friendly and charming and funny once he got to know you, and he did get to know me over four four years. Uh, and I lost my my fear of him. He was a very uh, thoughtful person and cared about the whalers more than I can say, uh, particularly the, the rhythm section and the bass players, Carly and those guys who played with him. And he was very popular amongst other reggae musicians and nurtured them. Uh, there, was no, I, there wasn't an ounce of competitiveness, not nothing. If he heard that, you know, the Heptones or Toots or, you know, Third World or, or any of those bands needed something, he was there to help them and would always talk about them. And it was a community. Hmm. a true spiritual community because he would say at all times this is not pop music we want it to be popular but as he said i'm a messenger not a star and um that didn't mean he had his moments you know when he 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 wanted to be treated with respect that he didn't always get Hmm. not in the states his his major uh markets at that time were believe it or not uh northern europe sweden uh norway denmark germany Mm-hmm. Uh, those were the places that w- w- he couldn't go wrong there. Although there's a famous story about the first time he went to Sweden and uh, the plane landed and it was freezing cold and there was snow. And Bob looked out and said, no, man, <laughs> and went back in the plane. Uh, but they, they <laughs> I, I don't know how apocryphal that is, but he, he got out and he was very popular. He was very popular in Britain mm-hmm. and eventually yeah. conquered the States. Right. You know. Now, let's uh, going back again to... Uh, did th- this, I assume, of course, this propelled you uh, to continue to do the kinds of things like this where, you know, they meant so much to you. You know, I'm, I don't think I'm projecting because I'm saying that about myself because I, I always really wanted to do the, share the things that I liked, you know, that I loved. Yeah. Now, that this, this, of course, must have propelled you because it was in the mid-'70s. Uh, to uh, move from there and continue in that path. Yeah, it did, particularly in the area of music. Because what I think people nowadays, probably particularly younger people, don't know or remember is that music and film and television were miles apart. Mm. There were films about music, but it was badly done on television coverage of music, with the possible exception of Ed Sullivan, who was surprisingly careful when he had the Stones and the Beatles on and Elvis, he made sure that the, the front line and the back line and the whole business was balanced, and, the, you know, that was well done. But on the whole, it was really terrible. So we, uh, some friends and I, determined that we would try and start doing, you know, a better quality version of music for television. Of course, there was no outlet. So we mm. were making really independent films. And then uh, people like Jonathan Demme uh, started to do high-quality films. His film of which is called Stop Making Sense about the Talking Heads band. Talking Heads uh, was a, is my sort of one of my great icons, plus Martin Scorsese's marvelous The Last Waltz with the band of Bob Dylan, Neil mm-hmm. Young, Van Morrison, Muddy Waters. Uh, that, to me, still is the greatest of all, of all rock and roll films. I did a film in 1979 called No Nukes, uh, and I came up with the idea because... Um, at that time, it was just after TMI, uh, Three Mile Island, the yeah. uh, explosion there, which which was very terrifying to people in Pennsylvania. And a concert came about 
the No Nukes concert, which myself and about 10 other people put together. And then we got the money from Electra Records to Jackson Brown uh, to finance the film. And um, we filmed it at Madison Square Garden at Battery Park. And um, we were all absolutely thrilled and excited that uh, Mr. Springsteen came on board. And I worked with Bruce for eight months, uh, solidly, on the shooting of it, which we shot with uh, 13 60-millimeter cameras, and then edited it over a period of eight months. And I will say this, uh, Bruce Springsteen was there at every edit session (laughs) for all 44 songs that we edited of his. Uh, He did 22 songs both nights. And uh, Bruce was there for every moment of the editing. Mm. And I want to say this and say it loud and clear. There isn't a finer person on the planet than Bruce Springsteen. Mm. He's a uh, he's just a gem. I mean, the friendliest, warmest, most humble person, and yet a perfectionist beyond words. Got to tell a story. Um, one night he left, and we worked at night because he was he was um, recording the River, the album, the River. Mm. Um, and um, uh, we finished, and then uh, I went home, and I got a phone call at two or three o'clock in the morning from John Landau, who, was, who discovered Bruce and was his manager. And John said, do you mind? I'm sorry. Would you come in early tomorrow? Uh, Bruce wants to talk to you about something that's kind of important to him. And I, he just wanted me to remind you that, to come in. So I went in and Springsteen was there. And he said, listen, man, I don't, I do a good impersonation. of He said, I don't want to, you know, impose on your territory, man. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, you're the director and everything, but... I have a problem, you know, in the river, we, we shoot me very close from the side and underneath my left lip, there's a huge boo-boo, man, like a cold sore. And I said, well, you know, I confess I haven't noticed it. He said, well, it's okay on the little machine we're editing, Dave, but when it goes on the big screen, <laughs> it's going to be three feet wide. I worked it out. <laughs> I said, okay, we'll take the left side instead of the right side. But what's important about that story is that how humble he was. Mm-hmm. You know, he could have said anything to me. He could have said, and I would have done it, you know. And, but it just shows you that certain great artists are truly, you know, huma- humane. Yeah. But he was a perfectionist. Yeah. That's now, what I remember. Yeah. You have this wonderful story of hanging with Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you want my Bruce story? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> well, it's pathetic. <laughs> We were working in the same studio in Hollywood together when he was making a couple of those uh, double set records. I can't remember. In the 80s somewhere. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. Early 90s. Oh, early yeah. 90s, okay. yes. And um, so, it, you know, we had a common men's room. This is really sick. I can't believe I'm telling this. <laughs> so we've taken a piss in the men's room, but he left his pick on top of the urinal that he, he had just been doing a, because we could hear, you know, going by the, going in, you know, poke our head and that kind of thing. I took that pic, Dave. That's my story. But I can't find it. Oh, that's worse. Now this is really sad. Oh, you lost boy. the pic? I lost the pic. Bruce Springsteen <laughs> pic, that's all. That's all. Okay, let's say no more about that. You know, uh, but just to, I mean, just to show how far we've come, we shot that thing with we, we, that thing in Madison Square Garden with all a dozen or more sixty millimeter. It took forever to shoot. Uh, we didn't even have video in camera, which came like three years later, where you could actually look at the video. Now there's no. I mean, you can shoot 
with an $800 cannon, you know, a a, a club or anything. And the quality is remarkable. And it's instantly, you know, editable by anybody on on a computer, on a Mac or anything else. And that's another aspect of media, which I just love. Because I'm partaking in that, and so are you. You know, yeah. whereby we used to struggle to do anything, and it was so expensive to actually process the film and print it yeah. and edit. No, no, it's a whole. And in fact, now it's amazing. That is absolutely. I mean, if everything is neutral, which I think we agreed. Okay, the use of the net, the use of social media, it's there and it can be used or abused. And there's positive and negative things always going to go on there, uh, but. The reality of doing the things, you know, projects that uh, that you've described, uh, which are, you know, projects that turn people on to this day of that, you know, magnitude um, and importance. Um, this is is a gift. It's a gift that that this can come without uh, without a lot of uh, as as you say, money that's involved in trying to process stuff that you're working on. That you can have access, and of course, you know, obviously with music, you know, the whole digital thing allows, now it also allows for a lot of garbage. Yeah, yeah. Big time. Of course, we know that. Look at YouTube. Yeah. But it allows for true, um, true to the heart of uh, productions of people who really have something to share. And then it gets picked up on, and then they get supported. Whereas before that just was not possible. So I think that qualifies for, uh, we can end our little podcast here by saying, uh, in the end, this is a true gift to humanity. No question about it. No question about it. So, Well, um, we're going to say goodbye to you folks and uh, go to mindrollingpodcast.com and look for goodies, resources, uh, God knows what the hell we're going to get up there. Do you know? No, and also go to audible.com. And no, you can't go to audible.com. I take See? that back. Don't go audible there. Don't ever go trial, there. Audibletrial.com slash podcast, Or just go to our site. Anyhow, enough of that stuff. We'll see you next time. Yeah, good night. Bye.